by the time you get to the fifth, fifth book in your Bible, uh, you can get really confused. Uh, if you, matter of fact, if you're not a systematic reader, in other words, if not some structure to your Bible reading, uh, this is actually the very reason we don't start new believers in the Old Testament for this very reason. Uh, if you're one of those Bible readers where you, know, you just kind of set your Bible on its spine and let it fall open, that's what I'll read today, you know. Well, nine times out of ten, if it falls open, that's when it falls the book of Psalms, which is right in the middle uh, of a very long book. But if you just randomly hop around and read, for example, if you landed in the fifth book of your Bible and just started reading Deuteronomy chapters 28 and 29, it'd blow your mind. You'd be so confused about the character of God if you just randomly read that chapter. 28 and 20, chapters 28 and 29. Uh, you'd be so confused about what it means to be a Christian and what God expects you to do and how to live and what am I supposed to do. And, you know, if you don't keep all of the, 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 the things written in the book, then I'm going to do this. And you're like, oh my goodness, I've got to keep all of these rules. You'd come away with a completely 180 degree opposite impression of what God wants you to do if you just randomly read passages out of your Bible, uh, without context, just jumping into a passage and reading it, you're going to see God as angry and mean, because you don't understand the context of what's happening in that section of biblical literature. And you would come away thinking, it's impossible to live uh, in a way that would please God. Context makes a huge, huge difference. The Bible is literature. We have to read it as literature. And my task this morning is to give you that context. The biblical story is not complicated. Structure is complicated. But once you understand the structure of the Bible is built on six covenants, it frames and holds the story that the Bible's telling together. The six covenants do. It's the framework of the Scripture. And once you get that... Once you know you're standing in the kitchen, you don't expect to see a couch. Once you know you're in the bathroom, you don't expect to see a refrigerator. Okay? And knowing the framework, knowing where you're at in Scripture, is what makes the story work. Now let me quickly give you the backstory. We have a lot of new faces here this morning. Let me give you the backstory in case you weren't here for a few weeks. The biblical narrative begins with a creator God who created our world and our universe. When he comes to the end of his creative work, he creates his crowning achievement. Human beings. We become, in the narrative, uh, the piece de raisons of God. The the, 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 the magnum opus. This coolest thing he created. That's us. We are the crowning work of creation because we discover we've been made in the image of our Creator. We are living images of our Creator set into a heaven and earth temple called Eden on planet earth. And we've been given this special vocation as a king priest to our God. We use the word around here, angled mirrors. We reflect God to the world. We reflect worship and praise from creation back to God. It's a really, really cool opening to Scripture. But here's the story. Let me just zoom really quick. The first humans rebelled against God and broke the covenant they had with Him. 
And as a result, chaos and death begin to infect every level of creation. Everything spins out of control. In other words, the world as you know it right now, it is, is, it's messed up. Civilization spirals downward for ten generations. That's what's recorded in the opening five, six chapters of the book of Genesis. Civilization spirals out of control until divine intervention is required and God steps forward and says, okay, enough. I've got to intervene. This is totally, totally out of control. So God's judged humanity and rebooted this human project, started over with what you might call another Adam, another fresh start, except this man's name was Noah. And Noah and his sons and all their wives get into the ark and humanity is about to get a reboot, a complete fresh start. They get off the boat and start civilization again and here's what happens. His descendants, after ten generations, follow the same path as the previous ten generations and his descendants, Noah's descendants, break the covenant just like the first family, Adam's family, broke the covenant until finally after ten generations after the flood, they gathered together in united rebellion at a place called Babel, the Tower of Babel, and God comes down and judges humanity again and confounds the languages and scatters them into nations and will not let them unify in rebellion. That's two starts. So God now makes a third start. And God says, if the nations of this earth will not enter into a covenant with me and walk with me, I'll just make a new nation. If those nations don't get it, I'll just make a whole new nation. Let's just see if I can find one man here and, and a woman. Oh, an old man and a barren woman with no kids. Won't this be a miracle? I'll just start with them and I'll build a whole new nation out of impossibility. How about that? And that's how you know God did it. He just said it could never happen any other way, so watch me do it. And so God comes and finds Abraham, and he's going to make a new nation from him, different than all the other nations, a nation that will have a heart for God and a covenant for God, because it's always been God's idea for this uh, living images of God, living in a covenant with him, to be king, a nation of king priests. This has always been God's idea. So that took us to Abraham last week, and God said as a sign of the covenant with Abraham, I want all of your males to be circumcised. Now last week, that was an interesting sermon, I know for you. But now you know the meaning of circumcision, right? Because we talked about it, we won't have to talk about it every week now, but it will show up on the pages of your Bible reading continually. And every time you see it, you know what's happening now. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant with Abraham, and it was a sign that said that every descendant of Abraham, every Hebrew, every Jew, is supposed to be in a covenant relationship with God. Everyone is a king priest in the nation of the Hebrews to God because every man in this nation is marked with the mark of the Son of God. And that's what circumcision means. God wanted His new nation to live in the spotlight of what humanity living in a covenant with God, looked like. He wanted the whole world to see the Jews, to see Israel, and say, wow, that's what living in a relationship with God looks like. So it's no surprise to any of us who know our geography. You do know your geography, right? So it's no surprise to any of us who know our geography that God decided to give the piece of land that He gave to Israel... It's the land bridge 
that exists between all of the ancient superpowers of the world. In other words, if you wanted to put your nation on display so they could reflect to the world God and, and godly values, you'd have to put your nation somewhere where the world could see them, right? Couldn't put them in Antarctica. So God put his nation right there between the superpowers of Babylon, Greece, Egypt, Syria, all the great nations of the ancient world ring Israel. Why? Because they're a mirror. They're supposed to be reflecting God to this world. He put them right where he wanted them to be. From that strategic location, from that strategic position, it is a bridge of land which connects three different continents. Europe, Asia, and Africa connect on that little piece of land that God gave to Abraham. And from that little piece of land in the middle of the world... Israel would model for the entire world what a holy people living for God looked like. They would model for the world how to be good stewards of the earth's natural resources. They would model from that spot how to treat your fellow man in a way that is truly human. Those high and noble ideas that God has always had for us to live by. But here's the short part of the story in talking about Abraham's people. Although all of them had the mark of God, they did not all have a heart for God. And that's going to become a big deal next week, by the way. So keep that in your thoughts back there. They all had a heart, a mark for God. See, I'm God's son. But it was only an outward mark. They didn't actually have a heart for God. And so what happened is they broke the covenant. They turned on each other, sold a brother into slavery, and eventually all of Abraham's family became enslaved, slaves, persecuted, beaten, owned, property in Egypt. That brings us now to the book of Exodus. This is the story of Moses. Let me summarize it as quick as I can. Joseph has died. The nice Pharaoh who knew Joseph has died. Generations have passed, and now there arises a whole new government, a whole new Pharaoh, and it's not a friendly climate. The Jews have been enslaved. They're scared of the Jews because all of the men wear the mark of the Son of God. They think they are king priests. They think they are ruling class, but they are slaves. But they multiply like crazy. We better enslave them before they enslave us. And finally, Pharaoh says they're reproducing so quickly, we've got to shut it down. He tells the midwives, every baby that's born that is a boy, you are to take the baby and throw it into the river Nile. It's not just infanticide. It's not just murder. The Nile was considered a god, a river god. We're not just going to murder the babies. We're going to murder them in sacrifice to our fertility gods of Egypt. But we know the story. Moses' mother didn't wait for the midwife. She had the baby on her own. She kept baby Moses hidden for several months until baby Moses found his lungs, like babies will do. And once he discovered he had a voice, they could no longer keep baby Moses hidden. She built a little boat. She put baby Moses in the little boat and set him adrift into God's hands. And God blew on the river Nile and stirred the currents very gently and steered that little boat right up to the spot where Pharaoh's childless, barren daughter 
was bathing in the Nile to the fertility god seeking for a baby. You get the story? Fertility god of Nile, bless me with a baby. I can't have babies. I'm looked down upon by my Egyptian royal family. Little baby sails right up in front of her in a boat. What would you think if you were her? My God just gave me a baby. My God answers prayers in strange ways. That's what you'd think. The record says she took, I mean Moses, the name Moses means drawn from the water. She drew him from the water and picked the little baby up. He's in swaddling wrapped in blankets. If you were her, what's the first thing you'd do? Gender reveal. What did my God send me? What did my God send me? You know, gender reveal. Get to, get your, everybody get your camera ready. Here we go. Uh, uh, surprise, it's a boy. Oh my goodness. He has the mark of God. Now you follow me? He, he's a Hebrew and his mother has circumcised him. But when she draws the baby and opens the basket and says, it's a boy, oh my goodness, he bears the mark that our priests and our kings in Egypt bear. He came from God already circumcised. He came from God. He's truly a gift from God. That's what she thought. And she scooped a little bit. Now, I think she knows he's a Hebrew, and if not, he's going to find out he's a Hebrew, and we'll get to that part of the story. Let me fast forward. About 40 years, Moses is now a grown man. He's a general in Egypt. He's already conquered Ethiopia. He's one of the best generals they've ever had. He's in line for the throne of Pharaoh. He is a prince and general of Egypt. We are not told exactly how, but somehow in his adulthood, he discovers that he's actually not Egyptian. He was not born by the Nile God. (laughs) He's actually a human being, and he's actually Hebrew. Well, now, once you know, once you get off Ancestry.com and know who you really are, uh, it changes the way you think about things. I mean, just imagine how I felt when I discovered I'm like 2% slave from West Africa. Just imagine. Just imagine how... The senator from Massachusetts felt when she realized she wasn't Indian at all. Which changes your whole story. Changes your whole narrative. Moses had been told his whole life he was born from the Nile. He's a gift from God. He's an Egyptian king that rode in on a boat, sailed across the... He was told this wild, fantastic story of what his life meant, now he realized, my, my people are slaves. That's why I have the mark. I'm Hebrew, not Egyptian. Now he's got a decision to make. What decision will he make? Well, for that answer, let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, which is the quickest summary of his story. Let me read. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. Rather, he chose to be mistreated. 
He chose the slave family over the royal family. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt. In short, Moses chose God. Remember the girl I showed you last week, one of our disciples? They came to her and said, the gods have chosen you to be Hindu priest. She said, yeah, but I choose Jesus. You know what they told Moses? The gods have chosen you to be the next Pharaoh. You know what Moses told them? Yeah, but I choose Jesus. I choose God. And he forsook Egypt and pursued a relationship with God. Now, Moses wrote the book of Genesis because the Jews didn't know their story. And he wrote the book of Genesis structured with three covenants so that they would understand Adam to Noah, Noah to Abraham, Abraham to Egypt. To to present time. He wrote the book of Genesis so they would know their story because knowing your story is very empowering. You say, why? Because Moses was told a false narrative of his story his whole life. For 40 years, they told Moses a false story about who he was. And when he learned about who he really was, it changed his real story, changed his life. He wasn't destined to be Pharaoh of Egypt. He was destined as a Hebrew to be a living image of Almighty Jehovah God. He didn't bear the mark of the kings of Egypt. He bears the mark of Jehovah God. That's my real story. So at age 40, Moses left Egypt and went to dwell in the wilderness of Sinai. I'm fast-forwarding the story. He sees something very curious. He climbs up on Mount Sinai and there is confronted with God at the burning bush. At the burning bush, God calls him into service and says, Moses, your destiny is not to be a shepherd, not like this anyway. I want you to be the deliverer. You're you're an unusual man I raised for an unusual purpose. And you're going to go right back down to Egypt now. And you're going to look your kinfolk in the eye. Well, your adoptive kinfolk in the eye. And you're going to tell Pharaoh, let my people go and he does but pharaoh will not let them go i mean after all they're building the treasured cities of egypt maybe the pyramids maybe all you know all that archaeology stuff we see of it they're building it the slaves are for the pharaohs he's no way he's going to let the slaves go moses says if you don't it's going to get real ugly i'll destroy god will destroy this nation i'm going to bring 10 plagues down and it'll destroy your economy it'll destroy the gods you worship the nile They worship the frog, the fly, the alligator, the crocodile, the fish, and the water, and the sun. Just for starters, okay? You know what God's going to do? He's going to turn the lights of the sun out. He's going to ruin the water. He's going to kill the fish and the frogs and the flies. and It's going to be a disaster. And ultimately, it will culminate when Pharaoh hardens his heart with the invocation of the death of the firstborn. And Moses will observe the very first Passover, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. And he'll call them together and put the lamb blood on the doorpost and the lintel of the house. And the death angel is coming through Egypt. And in the morning, Pharaoh will let them go because he don't have a country left. It's been nuked. It's wiped out. The Bible actually says that Moses and the Israelites spoiled the Egyptian. If you wonder where they got the gold to make the Ark of the Covenant and the candlestick... They were like a conquering nation now. 
They just went and took all of Egypt's gold and silver they could carry. I mean, you can only carry so much and you're going on foot now. But they took it and they just spoiled them as a conquering nation. Now, Moses leads the Jews across the Red Sea on dry ground. And they're marching for Mount Sinai because they've got a meeting with God where they intend to worship God at the mountain where he called Moses. And there God will bring in the fourth covenant. Now just summarize Exodus chapters 1 through 18. What follows Exodus 19 to 24 is a book within a book. And Exodus 19 through 24 is called the book of the covenant. When they get to Sinai... They're going to establish a suzerain vassal covenant between God, our great king, and the nation of Israel. You know what a suzerain vassal covenant is, right? It means one party is going to promise to protect another party as long as that party furthers the interest of the great king. And there's going to be a ceremony, and there's going to be a sign, and there's going to be some blood, and there's going to be a hoopla, and everybody's got to raise their hand and swear an oath of, of the covenant. And at the end of the day, there are some rules. There are some uh, uh, covenant stipulations. Uh, and, and really, uh, that's what's coming. Exodus 19 through 24. And really, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and into Deuteronomy. Now let's talk about the Mosaic Covenant. I'm in Exodus 19. Let me read. Moses went up to God, Mount Sinai. And the Lord called him from the mountain and said, Moses, here's, Moses is running up and down this mountain. He had calves like you can't believe. I mean, you just read the book of Exodus. He's up the mountain, he's down the mountain. He's up the mountain, he's down the mountain. He was fit. He's like a CrossFit champion, man. This is, he called him up and he said, this is, what I want, this is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob. This is what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourself have seen what I did to Egypt. What did God do to Egypt? You tell me. He smashed them like a bug. Okay? That's what he did to Egypt. All right? And how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself at Sinai. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, watch this. It's beautiful. Then out of all of the nations, do you see this is what God always wanted? It's always been God's idea since Genesis chapter 1. A nation of people who are kings and priests who will worship me and be in a covenant with me. Watch what God says right here. Then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine. Do you know that you're more important than the whales and the bees and the trees to God? You are the crowning work of his creation. And more than anything, he wants a relationship with you. And if you will just want that too, then you will be his treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, watch this. You will be for me a kingdom of what? That's what he always wanted. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. Verse 7, so Moses... Went back down the mountain, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them the words that the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded. Here's the, what do y'all say? In the covenant, out of the covenant, what do you want to do? These are the words of God. What do you say to the words of God? Here's what the people said. We will do everything the Lord has said. Moses gets a couple of granola bars, a bottle of water. Where's he going? Back up the mountain. Notice, do you think God already knew what they said? But instead, he's making Moses play out a suzerain vassal covenant agreement, just like they did in their culture. 
Moses as the official messenger now has to come back to the other party formally and say, here's what the people have said. And that's exactly what he does. Now, let me give you a little sidebar. What you call the law in Scripture is not really a code of law as you understand it in America. If I say, you know, Michael Gibbs, you broke the law, you think somewhere written in a book in America, there are words that said you can't do what you just did. That's a code of law, unified code of military whatever, okay, or unified code of whatever in America. In the Bible, when they say the law, it's not a law code like you can't run a stop sign. It's not like that. The law, when it uses this language here, the law in Scripture is actually the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. They're covenant terms. And that's very important to you. They're covenant terms. It's not a law that applies to everybody everywhere in every period of time of every language of every diversity of every... No. The law as written here in, in Scripture that we're talking about. Law is the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. Now let me give you some vocabulary. If we say Mosaic Covenant, Sinai Covenant, the Old Covenant, the Israel Covenant, they're all synonyms. Israel at Mount Sinai with Moses, and typically you just call it by the name of the guy who's running back and forth, okay? Uh, Adam, Noah, you know, Moses, David, it's really about the person involved. So we call this the Mosaic Covenant, Exodus 24. So Moses wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, which means he went back down the mountain somewhere between those two passages I read you again. His thighs are burning like crazy. He sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. And Moses, now this is the ceremony. Now you remember sometimes they, two opposing altars, hack an animal in pieces, everybody walks between. There's no way a million people are going to walk between this. So they build two altars and they set up 12 pillars of stone representing all of the people. And they cut the animals up. Verse number where you at? Five, go to six. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls. And the other half he splashed against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and he read it to the people. And they responded, we will do everything he has said. We will obey. Then Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. Now, I don't know if he sprinkled it on the people. That's kind of freaky, isn't it? Or if he sprinkled it on the 12 pillars representing the people. You know what I'm saying? That they set up as witnesses. But it's the covenant ceremony. The problem is in the covenant between two people where they can just walk between the altars. It's a covenant between God and a nation of people. So they're doing it a little more symbolically this way. But the blood's getting splashed on the people. And the blood's getting splashed on the altars. Now, if you just opened your Bible and read this, you'd be saying like, well, I guess we need to go hack up an animal, honey, this afternoon and splash it around a little bit. I mean, you need context. This is a covenant ceremony. Now, we don't do covenant ceremonies uh, like this too much. It's not our culture. It's thousands and thousands. It's 4,000 years old, what we're reading. The closest thing we have to this is a covenant ceremony in our culture called a marriage ceremony that's the closest thing we have and the symbolism is simply this the blood has now joined the two parties the blood has now joined the two part two people unrelated by blood are now through a covenant of marriage closer than any other kin 
you forsake your father and mother, and now this is your blood. Does that make sense? That's the closest thing we've got. And a marriage ceremony is probably your closest covenant ceremony that would give you context for what you're reading. Now, here's what's wild. Moses is going up and down the mountain, and he goes up and he writes stuff down. He's going to get the Ten Commandments and all this. You know, this is what's happening. And the laws and the covenant stipulation, all this. And, and, and while Moses goes up the mountain to talk to God, and he's writing down all the things God wants him to write down, they are already breaking the covenant at the bottom of the mountain. You know what the covenant rules of the covenant say? Let me give you the first rule of the covenant. You ready? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Rule number two of the covenant? You shall not make unto you any graven image of any man or beast or fowl that flies through the skies or in sun, moon, stars, or planets, not in the earth, under the earth, under the water. You shall not make any graven image. You shall not bow down thyself to them. You shall not worship them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, and I will visit the wickedness upon the... He, God gets really upset about this. All right, now, they've got the covenant stipulations. They're already breaking the covenant while Moses is up there talking to God. Now, in literature, which is what this is, do you know what we call that? Foreshadowing. We call this foreshadowing in literature. Well, if that's foreshadowing, then what is to come in this story? A whole lot of covenant breaking. Is that fair? So what you're going to read on the pages of your Bible going forward is about a whole lot of covenant breaking behavior. Now, the covenant has a sign. Here's the sign of the covenant, the Sabbath is Israel's covenant sign. I'm reading from Exodus 31. The Israelites were to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him two tablets of the covenant law, the the tablets of stone, watch this language, inscribed, By the finger of God. How cool is that? So, here's what God says. I want you to tell Israel the sign that we're in a covenant. Now, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, circumcision. The sign of the Mosaic covenant, the Israel covenant, Sinai covenant, is keeping the Sabbath. So, the other nations worked seven days a week. When they were slaves, they worked seven days a week. But Israel was going to be a different kind of nation. Israel was going to prosper and only work six days a week, and devote one day to resting in honor of God. We call this the Chick-fil-A model, the Hobby Lobby model, okay? Now, the ancient world had never entertained such an idea, never entertained such an idea. The ancient world thought the Jews were crazy, but this is the whole point. They were supposed to be different, and a feature of national life under the covenant made them unique because they just, if you would, dismissed one-seventh of their working opportunities, income-making opportunities, and said, we're going to do work on six and rest on the seventh. Now, the terms of the covenant, when you read through these books in your Bible, are valuable because they teach us about God. Listen carefully. But the covenant terms do not apply to us. Why? Because you're not a Hebrew, living in 2000 B.C., and you're not under the covenant of the Mosaic-Sinai Treaty. Does that make sense? So this is how people get confused in the Bible story. So we need to what? Not trim our beard. We need to not marry our cousin. We, need, we don't need to marry your cousin anyway, but you need to not do this. You need to, all those rules that are written in the Bible, in the law, are actually covenant terms 
they don't apply to you. Now, it doesn't mean there's not some instructive things there, right? And it doesn't mean that Jesus in the New Testament's not going to look back and say, hey, that whole thing about don't commit adultery, that's good. Let's keep doing that, okay? Jesus will give you his own code in the New Testament. He'll say that whole thing about love God with all your heart. Yeah, let's keep doing that. That's good. That's a law going forward for all of us to observe. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others. Jesus starts restating the portion of the law that we need to, you see, does that make sense? That we need to be living, but we're not under this covenant agreement. Now, the covenant, uh, Moses is getting old. They've been wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. They go around and back and they're in Moab. And now they're about to cross the river Jordan and go into the promised land. That was 40 years. Here we go. As they're about to step into the promised land, they're standing in the country of Moab on the other side. God says, Moses, you may want to rehearse the terms of the covenant. It's been 40 years. Let's make sure everybody remembers. Because in a few days, they're going to go in. And it's a big deal that everybody's on the same page with the covenant, okay? That nobody's forgotten what the covenant's all about. So as they near the promised land, Moses rehearses the covenant. This is the book of Deuteronomy. So when you're reading Deuteronomy, you're like, haven't I already read this somewhere, like in Exodus? Yes, you have. But now we've walked a million miles in these sandals, and now we need to be reminded because a lot of people have gone on to heaven, and some people have been born, and now we need to make sure that the next generation really understands this. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29 are fascinating reading, and I want this to be your homework, really. Deuteronomy 28 and 29 and uh, Joshua 23 and 24, these are, these are four chapters I'd love you to read this week. And it'll make perfect sense now that I, I've given you context, okay? But they're fascinating, fascinating reading. I'm just going to read you a little piece of Deut- Deuteronomy 29. Here's what happens. Moses rehearses. Verse 9. Carefully follow the terms of the covenant so that you may prosper in everything you do. Verse 16. You know yourselves how we lived in Egypt and how we passed through all these countries on the way here. You saw among them detestable images of idols of wood and stone and silver and gold. Make sure now that there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you, whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure that there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. What's the bitter poison? Idolatry. When such a person hears the words of this oath, and they invoke a blessing on themselves. And the person is thinking. Here's what he, he said, here's the danger. You're going you're gonna to be tempted to think like this. I will be safe even though I persist in going my own way. Well, I could preach a sermon to America right there. I'm going to be blessed by God. Even though I intend to do whatever the heck I want to do. Who cares what God wants me to do? He'll still bless me. Oh, boy. So what Moses is rehearsing is, you're going to be tempted to say, I will be safe even though I persist in going my own way. They will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. Verse 20, the Lord will never be willing to forgive them. His wrath and his zeal will burn against them. All the curses written in this book will fall on them. Curses written in this book in the book of the covenant where the terms are described. Yeah, if they break the contract, then I'm going to invoke clause 37 and drop the hammer on them. It's exactly what God's saying. All the curses in the book will fall on them, and the Lord will blot out their names from under heaven. 
The Lord will single them out from all the tribes of Israel for disaster, according to all the curses of the covenant written in the book of law. I'm telling you, read Deuteronomy 28 and 29 and blow your mind this week, okay? Now here's what happened. He just rehearsed the covenant. They said, oh, we're in, we're in. We're going we're to serve God, we swear. Moses passes the baton to Joshua. Moses will never enter the promised land. He'll die on the other side, on the Jordanian side of the River Jordan. He sees it, but he doesn't enter. He goes to be with God. Joshua takes the baton, and now we're ready to move forward. Next year, for those of you going to Israel, we'll stand on the place of the crossing. Right there. Moses died right there. Joshua took the baton right there. Slap! And he took him right across. And there's Jericho sitting right on the edge of the hill. And its walls are about to come down in a few days. And we'll be right there in this spot. By the way, let me just say this. I am so proud of this dynamic generation of disciples we have at Cornerstone. You have claimed the faith of your fathers. You've taken the baton. And now you're taking it to a whole new reality. And, and that's what happens in the biblical story. Now Joshua's not a young, young man, but he leads a young, new generation into the promised land. They conquer the land. They take it for a possession. Time passes. Now Joshua is very old. I just summarized the book of Joshua. Here we go. Here's what he said. Joshua 23, verse 6. Be strong and be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Without turning aside to the left or the right, do not associate with the nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods. Does anybody by now think idolatry is a big deal to God? I mean, this just keeps coming up, and it's going to keep coming up. That's what it's all about. Don't associate. Don't, don't swear by their names. You must not serve them. You must not bow down to them. Verse 8, you are to hold fast to the Lord your God. As you have until now. Look at verse 11. So be very careful. To what? See, it's more than about rules. What it's really about is heart. Be very careful to love your God. Verse 20. If you forsake the Lord, and if you serve foreign gods, God will turn on you. And he will bring disaster. He will make an end of you after he has been good to you. Verse 21, but the people said to Joshua, what did they say? No, 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 we will serve the Lord. Verse 22, then Joshua said, okay, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve God. Yes, yes, we are witnesses, the people replied. 23, now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you. And yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey him. And on that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. Now this is one of the major six covenants. What this really is, is a covenant to keep the covenant. <laughs> this is just like a little mini covenant where they say, we're reminded, we're reminded Good reminder, Joshua, before you go to heaven. And the people of God are basically renewing their vows. You know about renewing vows, right? The people are renewing their vows. You know what? That may be something we need to do this morning. 
I saved when I was about this big. And several times along the way, what you need to do is you need to say, God, I'm a teenager now and I make my own decisions. And here's my decisions. I choose you. And somewhere along the way, what you need to do is you need to say, I'm a young adult now, God, and I can make my own decisions. And if I hadn't told you lately, I choose you all over again. And some of you are moms and dads now. A whole new chapter of life. You know what you need to say to God somewhere along the way as a mother and a father? You need to say, God, I gave my heart to you a long time ago, but if I haven't told you lately, I need you more than ever right now. And I love you more than ever right now. And God, I choose you all over again right now. That's called a vow renewal, which many of you will do with your marriage vows. Why not with your salvation vows? Why not with consecration towards God? Well, that brings me to the book of Judges. The Judges period in Israel's history was one of the darkest periods in all of Israel. And if you want some of the most mind-blowing reading you'll ever read, Read through the book of Judges where people are being chopped in pieces and FedExed across Israel. And I mean, it's just crazy, crazy stuff. And you say, why is it that way? I'll tell you why it's that way. Because after Joshua, although they swore on a stack of Bibles, they would serve God. They didn't. And they, that foreshadowing starts kicking in. And they break the covenant and break the covenant and break the covenant. And this establishes a cycle that will take you from the book of Joshua all the way to the book of Matthew. Here is the cycle. It looks something like this. Number one, Israel breaks the covenant and worships other gods. Number two, God uses foreign nations to come in and harass and punish Israel. Someone stands up and calls Israel to repentance, usually a code enforcer. Talk about that next week. It's prophet. Calls them to repentance. And when they get called to repentance, then God raises up, number four, a hero to rescue Israel. That's the whole book of Judges, and actually it keeps running all the way through the rest of the Old Testament. Now, if you understand that right there, you can understand everything from the books of Moses all the way until you open your New Testament. It will follow a pattern that looks just like that. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel. Here we come. This is the period of the monarchy in my last heavy lift this morning. The period of the monarchy. You would call that kings. Here come the kings. All of the other nations around Israel had a king. So Israel wanted a king. They, Israel always wanted to be like the other nations of the world. But Israel kept forgetting that God wanted the other nations of the world to be like Israel. <laughs> Does that make sense? You know, we have the same problem in our own lives. Somewhere about our youth department all the way up to our adulthood. Sometimes we look out at the world and we want to be more like them. God wants them to be more like us. We're the angled mirrors. We're the images of God that are supposed to be reflecting the right values. Now there's nothing wrong with a king per se. But what Israel really wanted is they wanted a king like the world's king. So the people of Israel selected a man that was like the other kings of the world. A tall, imposing, kingly figure. He had all the charisma of a king, but he did not have the heart for God. There's the big problem right there. Looked like a king, walked like a king, commanded people like a king, but he had no heart for God. Saul was not interested in leading a nation of angled mirrors. 
living images of God. Saul was not interested in leading a nation of true Jews who reflected a relationship with God. So God told the prophet Samuel, go anoint me at my choice of king. Enough with this choice that the people made. People made a bad choice. And sometimes nations make bad choices, don't they? Don't they? Have you lived through any of those bad choices? In your opinion? Sure, I pray we don't live through some more, okay? But people make bad choices. And God said, Let me, I'm cleaning it up though. I'm bigger than your bad choices. Watch this. God said, Samuel, go anoint a, a king. He's just a boy now. He's in the sheepfold. Go anoint a youth named David. Now what follows in Scripture is a huge struggle between the old king and the newly anointed king, between the outgoing guy who has no heart for God and the guy who has a heart for God who can't seem to get to the throne. God found in David a young man who loved God and loved God's people. Covenant number five. God made a covenant with David. He said, a son of David will be the Messiah. Will be, one of your sons, David, will be the king, the king, who will conquer sin and who will save the human race and who will make it possible to restore humanity to what it should have always been. I'm going to read two, two passages and show it to you very quickly. Second Samuel 7, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, God. Your throne will be established forever. Now we know Israel ceased to exist So the only way God's making good on this promise is he's going to have to revive a king. Well, and he does. We'll get to Jesus next week. He'll come along eventually. You wonder why when you get to the New Testament you have to endure all of these genealogies. Well, they're setting up the fulfillment of the covenants. That's what they're doing. The covenants frame the story and make it all make sense. You say, but it doesn't say covenant Yeah, but it does. Let me read Psalm 89. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. Now let me just talk for a minute about David. I'm going to be done. If you know the Bible story at all, then you know that David made some mistakes. Some big mistakes. Can we all agree on that? We all know about David's adulterous affair. We all know that David conspired to hide his sins. But in the end, in the big picture, he loved God so much. And that's a big deal to God. I hope it's a big deal to my wife because I'm going to make a million more mistakes than I've already made. And I'm hoping my love for her transcends that. And her love for me transcends that. David made so many mistakes. But here's what remained. He loved God so much. I try to say it to you in different language. He had a heart for God. And the lesson for us is that his heart for God always led him to a place of repentance where he could find forgiveness and cleansing of his sins. One of the most beautiful psalms we have, 51, is one of those moments where David's confronted with two of his most grievous sins by the man of God. And David falls on his knees in repentance and asks God to be merciful and renews his vows with God. Listen to what I'm saying. A king with a heart for God. What, Pastor, that sounds like Genesis 1, 2, and 3 again. Yeah. 
That's always been God's plan for you. A king, a queen, with a heart for God. It's exactly what God wants you to be this morning. A living image of God. A king priest living in a covenant of love with God. I want you to know that I've always been concerned that we have made some sins unforgivable in the Christian community. Have you ever noticed that? It's like all of my sins are forgivable, but yours aren't. Yeah. Yeah, I've got all these secret sins of pride and envy and jealousy and bitterness and evil, but you've had two marriages, so yours is not forgivable and mine's forgivable. That concerns me a lot. Because I think there's some gross misreading of what the Scripture is trying to say. We've made some sins unforgivable in the Christian community of this modern generation. I want you to know that's just not true. Yes, I have to temper it because I am your pastor. Sin is destructive. It's deadly. I get it. I don't want to minimize that. But hear what I'm saying. Sin is forgivable. God knows that you're not perfect. And there is no expectation of perfection in Christianity. I've not read it anywhere in the Bible and I've read it all. There is no expectation of your perfection in Christianity. What God wants is not your perfect record. What God wants is your whole heart. God pursues us and engages us in relationships and in spite of our mistakes. He went to the cross and sacrificed himself and his sacrifice on the cross covers our human failure. The blood of Jesus Christ has the power to cleanse our sins. Not some, all of our sins. This is what John said. He is the propitiation, the payment for our sins. And not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And ladies and gentlemen, that's a bunch of sins. But that's what the blood of Christ can do. God's concerned more with your heart than your mistakes. This is what I determined from this story. God's concerned more with having your heart completely than having this perfect record. I'm I'm not asking you this morning, hey, do you always do right? What I'm asking you this morning is, do you have a heart to want to do right? What I'm, what I'm asking this morning is not, have you always loved God with your whole heart? What I'm asking this morning is, do you want to love God with all of your heart? Do you want to honor God? Do you want to pursue His kingdom and make disciples as He has commanded us to do? It's very simple this morning. God doesn't want your perfection. He wants your heart. And that is a summary of the first five covenants. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Here's what I want you to do this morning. The next couple of minutes are vow renewal time. You say, Pastor, I'm already saved. I get it. I get it. I get it. I say 49 years ago, I get it. When's the last time, though, you told Jesus at this particular stage in your life, Where you are right now as a grandparent or a parent or a young adult or a teenager, 
When's the last time you poured your heart out to God and said, God, I'd say yes all over again this morning. If I hadn't already said yes, I'd say yes already this morning again. God, if I hadn't already given my whole heart and life to you, the answer would not change today. Maybe it's time just to renew. Call that consecration or reconsecration. Just like you would in a wedding service. As I'm administering the vows, I often will ask the the bride and the groom, repeat after me, I give you all that I am and I give you all that I have. And they never hesitate to tell the one they love those words. This morning, I want you not to hesitate. Why don't you say to God, God, I give you all that I am and all that I have. And I just want to renew my heart. God, you know I've not been perfect. And God, I know you have no expectation that I can be perfect. That's not what we're talking about. But here's what I do, God. I give you my whole heart. I give you all of my love. You'll be number one in my life. You'll be number one in my heart. You'll have my affection. Not the pleasures of sin and not the allurements of the world and not the false gods of man has made you God. God, my great King. I give you all that I am and all that I have. Father, your children bow before you this morning and just consecrate our hearts afresh to you. Father, thank you for making the biblical story come back alive in our lives today. As we see what our brothers and sisters lived through in the covenants, Lord, we are compelled this morning not to make our appeal to our sinlessness and our righteous behavior, but we make our appeal to your love. And Lord, what we promise is not perfection, but we promise to love you. promise to give you our whole heart this morning. Father, thank you for this wonderful group of men and women who worship before you today. Father, seal these decisions in our hearts. Thank you for the relationship we have that we can call you our Father, our great King. Lord, bless our lives this week. Just like you put all these blessings upon Abraham's people and Israel and the Mosaic Covenant and the great tender mercies and blessings you gave King David. God, pour some of that on us. We'd love to rejoice this week with some new jobs and some good test results and some new homes and blessings material and and peace and love and blessings emotional and blessings spiritual that we know rain down from you, our loving Father. Bless us, your people, this week. God, when we walk out these doors, let us be living images of the great King. This is our prayer together in Jesus' holy name. Let's stand together. Let's sing a song of worship and go home with a lot of joy in our hearts. You've chosen God, but long before you chose Him, He chose you.